Welcome back to On Call, a podcast from Amerisource Bergen, where we discuss the latest industry information relevant to our GPO member practices. In this episode, the third of our GPO legislative update series, Joel White, President and CEO of Horizon Government Affairs, and Tony Lee discuss the Inflation Reduction Act, PBM reform, and 2023 regulations. So that was a lot, and it was a high level, and there's all kinds of nuances and details that we didn't get into, and looking forward to maybe getting questions from you all about what's going to happen this year with MACRA and and Medicare physician payment and value-based care. Um, But wanted to switch uh, over to the drug side, because there was a significant change last year in the Inflation Reduction Act, and there's some politics around this that are ramping up, not slowing down. So I want to jump right into that. and. First, with the Inflation Reduction Act, this is the most significant change in in pricing since the Medicare Modernization Act of 2003 on the federal side, and really uh, shifting to a model where HHS will be setting and determining prices in both Medicare Part B and D, starting in 2026 and rolling out thereafter. And I think, you know, the big thing in 22 was that there was an add-on payment for biosimilars and that will be provided for a couple of years. Then in, in 23, the big change is air inflation rebates. And so very similar to the Medicaid rebate program, where if prices rise faster than, than a benchmark inflation, manufacturers are going to be required to uh, pay back to the federal government the difference. And a recognition, I think, that, that eliminating cost sharing for vaccines covered by Medicare and capping insulin costs would lead to better access and more adherence. And so uh, Congress said that we're going to take care of that in 23. In 2024, changes to the Medicare Part D benefits start to take effect. And the most significant one is eliminating cost sharing for catastrophic drugs or once an individual spends more than $7,000 in the Medicare program, uh, their cost sharing stops. And then enhancing low-income subsidies for Part D. Then in 2025, a significant reduction in the out-of-pocket cap to $2,000 on the catastrophic and no cost sharing for a beneficiary above that cap. It does change the liability between plans and taxpayers and manufacturers and the catastrophic with more risk being placed on insurers. And I'll talk about the implications there in a second, but smoothing cost sharing out throughout the year also was required in 25. That's significant for patients who come in in February and January beginning of the year with a high out-of-pocket, maybe they can't afford their deductible or their cost-sharing on that drug, plans would be able to smooth that cost-sharing out through the year to make it more affordable. But in 26, that's when the drug price negotiations start, and ramping up before then will be basically CMS starting their own PBM to negotiate or set prices for drugs initially in Part D, and then in 2028 for Part B. And the thing, I think the biggest misconception that we hear from folks is that, well, it's just 10 drugs or it's just 20 drugs. These are cumulative. So um, the 10 adds the 15, adds the 15, adds the 20. So you get 60 drugs subject to these controls by 2029. And it just keeps going after. So theoretically, after 2029, you can get most drugs in the program in both programs in the negotiated list subject to these price controls. And what are the price controls? So it depends on how long the drug has been on the market. 
without generic competition. So if you've got a brand competitor, you're not exempt from the price control. If you have a generic competitor, you are. And that's true with biosimilars. And basically, it's how long you've been on the market without competition. So if it's nine years, you're subject to a 75% cap on price to the federal non-average manufacturer's price. If you're on for between 12 and 16 years, it's 60%. And if you're on more than that, it's a 40%. So that is a significant change, right? The, the federal government will be determining below that price control what Medicare plans and doctors pay and receive in Part B and D. And it could be very low. It, it, there's no floor on the negotiation, so it could be a penny. And it's very difficult for manufacturers to get out of that structure. The only way to get out is to basically pull all your products off of Medicare and Medicaid. So it's significant. It's a significant change and it will impact the, the market in significant ways. So the other question I get asked quite a bit is what drugs are we talking about here? So in 2020, we took a look at the top 10 drugs, which accounted for about 40% of the market in Part B and 20% of the market in Part D. And you can see the list here. And some of those products are very familiar to you, used perhaps every day. You can see the gross spending there. And basically the threshold is if you have more than $200 million in spending, you could end up on the list. And then again, it's it's related to how long you've been on the market without competition. So you can see there in the third column, the years since the approval, and some of those products are already in the negotiation period. And then you've got to look at whether or not the product has competition, generic competition, not brand competition. And so you can see the products and the NAs indicate there's a, a marketed generic or biosimilar competitor. And so, you know, in part B, estimated year for eligibility, Katruda, for example. So it, if the federal government sets that price at 75% of the non-average manufacturer's price, that ends up becoming the maximum fair price that will be paid. And that will be the reimbursement rate for the physician office. So it's a big change from the current ASP system and would would result in a significant decrease in in reimbursement on the on the part b side so the other thing i think that we want to get into is part d redesign again um not going to get into every detail here the big thing is that there's more green on the chart starting in 2025 than there is under current law as depicted in the 2024 chart the green is the financial risk to the plan or to the insurer and so that significant increase in risk, we believe, will lead to lots of changes in the market, in particular, a lot more utilization management strategies on the plan side, particularly step therapy, prior authorization, fail first policies, things of that nature. And the other thing we're hearing from plans is perhaps significant restrictions on formulary coverage and perhaps more aggressive use of top tier formularies and things like that. So it's something we're keeping an eye on in terms of plan strategy. And I think notifying CMS to, um, you know, if there's any games being played around really significant access challenges faced by Part D enrollees. Uh, so in terms of the implications here, I think uh, there's a couple takeaways. So about a, a 
quarter of a trillion dollar reduction in R&D estimated by the drug industry. University of Chicago estimated about 135 fewer new drugs developed. We've already seen a couple products pulled uh, in statements to investors. The reason given was negative incentives around the Inflation Reduction Act. Uh, one product was in vision care, and the other was in oncology for a pediatric population. Change invested in, in incentives. We're seeing less investment or investment flows away from small molecule products versus large molecule products. So in the law, there's a differential. If, if you're on the market for nine years as a small molecule, you become eligible for the price cap. If it's 13 years for large molecule products. So you have longer time to recoup your investment. We're seeing more investment going into those large molecule products as a result of that differential. There will be better Medicare coverage with about a million benefiting from the out-of-pocket cap and three million from the capped insulin costs, and then another almost half million low-income individuals with better subsidies, uh, which is a good thing that should promote adherence. Again, you'd have to keep your eye on the plans to make sure they're not playing games. The, uh, the, the last thing in that category, the change incentives, the Congressional Budget Office and others have estimated there'd be higher launch prices because you have less time to make up your investment and higher, a lot more cost shifting onto other markets. So if I can't make my, my money in Medicare, I'm going to make it up in the employer market and try and shift as many costs as I can onto the employer side of things. And uh, perhaps most importantly for us, as we see Part B reimbursement go down, that could lead to more consolidation, fewer community-based practices able to make the economics work. And with those incentives to go into large molecule products, perhaps more expensive treatments generally in more expensive settings like the hospital. Um, and then I did want to highlight what, what are we talking about specifically on the Part B side. And Avalier Health, an analytical firm here in Washington, D.C., took a look at what these changes in reimbursement might mean across medical oncology, hematology, rheumatology, and then all physicians and all providers. And you can see the numbers don't look good. So this is a 2028 challenge where you're looking at maybe as much as a 50% cut in reimbursement on the add-on payment. So I want to make, you know, don't shoot the messenger, just want to be the truth teller here this is a serious problem that I think most should be committed to, to addressing over the long term. And last but not least, um, I wanted to just highlight that this isn't the end of the day on drug pricing changes or from Congress or the administration to continue to address what's a politically potent issue. The Biden administration announced some additional drug policy changes last week three new models, one based on accelerated approval and basically changing payment for accelerated approval products that have not completed their confirmatory trial data. We don't know what that would look like. Um, you know, it could be a reduction in Part B or Part D payment. It could be some coverage restrictions. We're just, you know, could be a combination of the two, but I think payment is definitely on the table and they're looking to start that in 2024. Uh, cell and gene therapy, looking to set up a centralized approach to facilitate state participation in risk pools. That's exciting because, you know, more states are looking at how do we cover more products and be able to afford them 
because they're very expensive therapies. And then capping generic copays at $2 for a list of common chronic conditions starting in 2025 or later. And then CMMI is also looking at encouraging biosimilars in addition to the 2% additional add-on Congress authorized and are looking to leaders like Amerisource Bergen and others for how they would go about doing that. So, but Congress doesn't want to miss out on this train and they are looking at other issues as well. The House side is really looking at how can we ensure that the Inflation Reduction Act is implemented in a way that doesn't completely screw up innovation or access or things like that. Both the House and the Senate are looking at ways to perhaps address known problems like 340B and PBM reform, and then address social determinants of health as well as part of the drug system. So on PBM reform, just wanted to hit this very quickly. First off, there was a recent hearing in the Senate Commerce Committee that, uh, again, is chaired by Democrats. And, you know, the big quote that we took out of that was, why do you even exist? Why do PBMs even exist in this marketplace? What value do you add? And I think that's an important question to answer. Chuck Grassley, Maria Cantwell, Buddy Carter, and Dana Harshbarger are all asking those questions. Ted Cruz has been on the other side of the issue wondering, why should we give the federal government more authority to kind of, in his view, screw up a market? So that's going to play out in the Senate side and the House side. Buddy Carter and Dan, uh, Diana Harshbarger are leading two complementary PBM reform efforts. Buddy Carter has introduced the Help Copays Act, which would count patient assistance programs, maximizers, minimizers, accumulators towards out-of-pocket limits for health plans. And that obviously benefits the patient, allows that amount spent by the patient assistance program to count against their responsibilities. The FTC, for its part, is continuing to work on their study on PBM competition and anti-competitive practices, and we're expecting that study to come out soon. They may take possible enforcement efforts as a result of that. You know, three insurance companies control the PBM market, and I think we see challenges there. They're in the areas of competition and spread pricing, captive referrals, rebate pass-through, um, or lack of pass-through to the patient. Second is the reimbursement issues and, and how the DIR changes are all going to play out at the pharmacy level. But legislation has been introduced to ban DIR in all federal programs. And then transparency. How are these insurers and PBMs operating are they disclosing their cost and their financial arrangements so that plan sponsors and others can know uh, with certainty exactly how what the rules of the road are? Um, so I would expect there to be movement on a bipartisan basis on PBM reform this year. If not from Congress, then certainly the administration through the FTC and through their authority over the Part D program. So wanted to wrap everything up with a regulatory outlook. I think the big thing to keep in mind here is with divided Congress and a Democrat in the White House, it's very difficult to get things done legislatively. The other point is that within the last two years of a presidency, the president is less able to, to get their legislative agenda through. Uh, typically, they're weaker than where they stood when they first came in. But the administration has a ton of tools in their regulatory toolbox to be able to change programs and change direction. And so that's through the regular rulemaking process, like we talked about with the Medicare Physician Fee Schedule Annual Rule. 
It's through demonstration programs and funding different programs like through CMMI and the Enhanced Oncology Model. And it's through their ability to spend funds through normal programs like with COVID funds and unspent resources there. And as well as to set policy like through vaccine or mask guidance and things like that. So the regulatory outlook is going to be very important in 2023 because it's the area where you're probably going to be able to get more done. And so I think what we're taking a look at is the end of the public health emergency that's going to have significant implications for medicine and for coverage for people, especially through the wind down and Medicaid eligibility. Like I said, as many as 20 million people perhaps could be affected by that. Implementing the Inflation Reduction Act has to be done through CMS. It has to be you know, through the regulatory process. And the process for implementing the IRA is through sub-regulatory guidance, not the normal rulemaking process. So will it be transparent? How can stakeholders weigh in? You're going to create a new Medicare PBM. What does that look like? Who are you hiring? How are they handling conflicts of interest? Things like that. Equity and health disparities, again, that's the prism through which the Biden administration views most programs. And uh, we're seeing that through EOM. We're seeing, we'll probably see that in the Medicare fee schedule rule and other rules that come through CMS. We mentioned the FTC competition agenda. I think they're looking at hospitals, pharmacy, insurers, drug manufacturers, PBMs. The one that's made the most news right now is the PBM study and what they might do in the enforcement side, and then data rules. How are we collecting, sharing data? What's going to happen with revised privacy protections? That's most prominent in the women's health space. But there's a strong desire, I would say bipartisan, to improve interoperability broadly so that physicians and others have the data that you need to be able to deliver care effectively and efficiently. So I hope all that was helpful. It's a lot to go through and we hit on many, many topics of interest. So would love to open things up for questions. Yes, thank you so much, Mr. White, for your presentation. We'll switch to the question and answer answer session. Uh, if you'd like to ask a question, please use the Q&A feature at the bottom of your screen. Looks like we've got two questions in queue right now. Uh, Mr. White, are you able to see those right now? I am. Let me take the IRA question first. I think that, you know, a, a lot of what we'll see in Congress this year is taking care of the have to do's and then messaging bills around the want to do's. And the Inflation Reduction Act, it's kind of a signature. Sorry, the question is, do you think if there are major changes in the next election, is there a possibility for the Inflation Reduction Act to be changed? The answer is yes. I think the Inflation Reduction Act is a signature effort for the Biden administration and for last Congress. And so they're very sensitive on implementation and are very much opposed to any kind of changes, uh, big changes to the program. And so I don't expect anything major in this Congress, but I do think that there will be messaging bills that tee up issues for the next Congress, and the next Congress will be the first Congress under perhaps a second Biden term or a new president. And so I think if there's a Republican president, you're going to see more major changes to the program. It's also a function of how active people are and how much you weigh in. And I, you know, I worked for Congress for 12 years. And when people weigh in, you respond. So being much more active in community counts, 
cancer counts and weighing in with your member of Congress to say like, look, I'm very concerned about this potential change in reimbursement on the Part B side or, you know, whatever the issue is, weighing in, it becomes much more likely in the next Congress, especially if there's a different president. Um, so the other question is, what would be your recommendation on how practices can be more involved in making changes, especially with value-based care in the medical setting? So I think if you think micro and then go macro, on the micro level, I think it really is about like, how are you operating? Like, are you able to collect data and take patient reported outcome type input and then do something with it? And you really need a tool or a solution that would help you, you know, kind of at the micro level address those needs. And I think the big thing that we see in like EOM in particular is, you know, this, you're going to report all this stuff. What are you going to do with it? Are you actually able to connect a patient to someone who provides food or transportation, for example? And that connective, connective tissue or the need to connect, like I've identified the need, here's someone who can meet it, I think is, is pretty critical. At, at the macro level, I think the challenges with EOM and value-based care broadly are, it's a lot. It's a lot of burden and it's a lot of why are we collecting this data? What are we doing it for? Is it moving the needle? And if it's not, how do we change it? And kind of the wheels of value-based care turn slowly. But in my conversations with Liz Fowler at CMMI, her goal is to move everyone out of MIPS and into a value-based care model by 2030. Well, that's eight year, uh, seven years away. So how do we do that without physician buy-in? And I think what the regulators and members of Congress need to hear is we are not going to be able to meet that goal unless we're full partners in the answer in the process. And so I think developing what's an ideal value-based care model and then raising that with the regulators, with members of Congress is the right answer. And just being loud, just, just being out there and saying like, look, I'm committed to value-based care if you are. And you know, want to make a difference, but this is not working for us, or this is a challenge, or this works well, and we want to do more of this. So I think th those are, are great ways to be involved. That's all for this episode of On Call. Our next episode will feature information on federal budget and debt negotiations and the implications for Medicare, Medicaid, and ACA. If you have any questions for our guests or have a topic you would like to learn more about, email us at oncallgpo at gmail.com. Until next time, stay safe and thanks for listening.